Hello, welcome to Tips for Existence, which today is put out on the Book Shambles feed. Uh, if you've not heard Tips for Existence before, it's a series where I talk to some of the most interesting minds in science and art about purpose, meaning and happiness, and obviously we frequently go off on a tangent. So far we've heard from physicist Brian Green, astronaut Nicole Stott, atheist Bible scholar Francesca Stavrokopoulou, and comedian and musician Tim Minchin and you can hear all of those episodes as well as our Uncanny Hour series with Stuart Lee, Alan Moore, Samira Ahmed, Reese Shearsmith and loads of other people by going to CosmicShambles.com and supporting us via Patreon and our Patreon link is patreon.com slash Cosmic Shambles. That would also mean you can hear the extended version of today's Tips for Existence. Here it is. Hello, I'm Robin Ince and this is Tips for Existence. I've spent a lot of time in the last few years reading books about quantum physics, but I would still hardly dare open my mouth in a public space and express any of the ideas that I've read about because it still is a grand conundrum for me. The best I can hope for is the sudden buzz of excitement that makes my pupils dilate when a picture comes into my head and I think I understand something just for a moment. Usually this understanding passes through my mind and out of the window, but it's a pleasant feeling when it happens. It gives me hope that one day, if I keep at it long enough, this sense of understanding may not travel out of the other ear and will keep percolating in my mind. I had this experience of dazzling but brief comprehension while reading Carlo Rovelli's most recent book, Helgoland, in which he also describes the deeper experience of understanding that a scientist can experience as they explore worlds that can seem so strange to us. He writes, nothing is like the emotion of seeing a mathematical law behind the disorder of appearance. Carlo was also a guest on what undoubtedly was the hardest episode of the Infinite Monkey Cage in 2020, a discussion on time. So it's a remarkable idea, isn't it, that that thing that we sort of almost hold most dear, right, the passing of time, the fact that we were children and we will be old and one day we will die, is somehow not part of the fundamental description of reality, perhaps, which is certainly Carlo's view. I, I agree with Robin, this is complicated. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's where, it, I mean, it's a fascinating sort of grey area where, it, where science really does become like philosophy. I'm pleased to say that even Brian Cox was perplexed at times, though he might deny that now. While Mark Gatiss and I kept trying to derail the conversation towards a hammer favourite of ours, Quatermass and the Pit. What is happening here and now can affect the next five million years. It was what I was afraid of. The thing got a huge intake of energy. The very substance of it seemed to be coming alive. And you can't see this world any longer. Carlo Rovelli is a brilliant theoretical physicist a founder of the quantum loop gravity theory that hopes to bring us closer to understanding those first moments of our universe, which currently face the dilemma of quantum mechanics and general relativity just not really getting on together. Also in the last decade, he has become one of the world's finest popular science writers. Starting with Seven Brief Lessons in Physics, which has been translated into 41 languages, and starts very encouragingly with this. In his youth, Albert Einstein spent a year loafing aimlessly. You don't get anywhere by not wasting time. 
something unfortunately which parents of teenagers tend frequently to forget. Since then, he has written Reality is Not What It Seems, The Journey to Quantum Gravity, The Order of Time, and most recently, as I mentioned before, Helgoland, as well as There Are Places in the World Where Rules Are Less Important Than Kindness, a collection of essays and other shorter journalistic pieces. Helgoland is the island in the North Sea where Heisenberg retreated in the hope of controlling his hay fever and also contemplating the problems of quantum physics as he climbed rocks and memorised the works of Goethe. In Helgoland, Ravelli writes, Whoever stops to ask themselves what quantum theory has to say about the actual world remains perplexed. But he continues to explain that it also offers new perspectives to understand reality. A reality that is more subtle than the simplistic materialism of particles in space. A reality made up of relations rather than objects. I started by asking Carlo what his early beliefs and inspirations were. Oh, nine, ten years old, Carlo. Oof. <laughs> Life ago. Uh, I was... I think I was a, um, I was a curious boy, but uh, that was before things started to blow up, in a sense. Um, I was an only child in a, a very loving family, dealing not with a lack of love, but with perhaps an excess of love. I was very protected, uh, <clears throat> and. Uh, like many only childs, the problem for me was that uh, to to come out from this uh, um, only child nonsense that you believe to be the center of the world. And uh, you see, if you have siblings, you soon realize that you know you have to negotiate your way <laughs> um, among similar people like you. But if you're an only child, you in 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 a in a family that goes too much around you. Uh, that's a problem because uh, soon you soon uh, you you discover that you're not the emperor of the world. See, that almost feels now like that's you know. If I was a therapist, I would immediately say, "So you went into quantum mechanics because you realised that that would be the best thing to say. There was no center to the world." You know, it, it feels almost like if I was a Freudian, that would be my moment. Maybe that's the case. Maybe that's what happened. I had friends. I, I loved to to go skiing, to go in the mountains, to hike. To I was a I, I think it was a rather happy um, boy. But uh, stories about me are always uh, always point a side of me in which I would um, get enchanted, as they would say, my family, and go into my thoughts and uh, start looking at something and not answering questions and being into myself. So. Um, I think in my own way, I was a reflect, reflexive uh, kid. But this blew up very early in adolescence. I mean, 11, 12, 12 13, uh, everything exploded. Well, that's what you, you say in, in Helgoland, that, 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 that suddenly there was, a, with, with, with the, the onset of, of kind of puberty, the onset of adolescence, then it sounds like everything got very febrile, that you were really, you know, the, 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 these fascinations. So do you remember what the first things were that kind of drew you into some of the ideas which you've then gone on to explore um, since in terms of in, in physics and beyond? I think it was emotions uh, that drew the the sort of uh, intellectual thing and emotions uh, conflicts. At some point, I I I, I realized that uh, I was um, 
too confined in that good kid uh, situation. And I had to break it out somehow. And this created some conflicts in the family. And uh, shortly later, it created some conflict at school. Um, I felt in a cage and I felt I had to break that cage. A strong, uh, strong sense in adolescence. But breaking the cage was not just uh, in terms of what um, I could do or could not do. It's more in terms of what I was thinking, uh, what I was, uh, somehow I, I felt that my ideas were not my ideas and, uh, and uh, things were not the way I was told they were. And uh, so I asked, I started asking questions and uh, the questions grew, grew, grew um, more and more. And I started not believing what was being said around me. Did you have any, when you were growing up, was there any kind of uh, religion in your family? Was there anything like that? No. Um, my parents were sort of non, non, gently non-religious. Uh, they sort of suggested that I got a standard Catholic, uh, uh, I wouldn't say education, but information. Uh, so they did send me to the local church uh, because Italy, it's a completely uh, sort of 98% Catholic country. So they thought I should know what everybody knows. And uh, uh, they would actually go to the church a few times per year. <laughs> So there was no open criticism or anything, but it was just something pretty absent from from my uh, from my education. And what was it in terms of it? Because as you say in Helgoland, you know, secondary school science was pretty dull. It was pulleys and it was levers and it, it wasn't Einstein. It wasn't relativity. It certainly wasn't quantum mechanics. So, so but you I managed to get... teacher complaining to me and writing <laughs> to me, come on, I mean, why you talk so badly about the school that what we have to teach? But that does seem to be a problem, doesn't it? Because that, there's so many teachers that I talk to who are f frustrated that these ideas, I mean, the ideas that you've dealt with in, in, in your books, which are ideas which are both science but also have real philosophical implications, and yet so much of secondary school science education seems to be attached to something which doesn't connect us to the universe, which feels very separate to, to the universe. And that, and that to me seems to be, be a problem. It seems, I think we lose people who might otherwise have continued because they don't get to the really, the fun, exciting, let's go down layers of reality moments until, you know, if, if they end up going to university or college. Yeah, that's true. That's certainly true. And, and it's a problem in, a, in, in, a, in, a, in, in the education in many countries, uh, um, I must say that uh, there's a wide variety of, uh, of, of teacher, teachers and, uh, and schools. Uh, I have met fantastic teachers and, uh, and there are teachers who are capable of um, uh, engaging minds and, uh, and, uh, and emotions of the, uh, of the children. There are fantastic uh, teachers out there. Usually what works is a passion. Uh, somehow if the teacher is passionate about what is teaching? That's communicate, right? It's like in Plato, the the, the relation, the knowledge goes through through love in some sense and through passion. Um, but the the way the school is designed doesn't help, no doubt. And I I don't have a solution. It's not easy to redesign school, but uh, 
but certainly um i don't know how schools are in the uk right now for 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 kids or for uh sort of before high school uh but too much is uh, at least in my education i mean just sitting on a on a desk for hours is completely silly for a for a young boy or young girl. I mean, you want to move, talk, engage, do things, uh, ask questions, uh, not just learn uh, how to solve problems, which the next page of the book says what the solution is. I mean, give problems that you don't know the solution to children and they're going to find solutions. Well, that does seem, reading also your book of essays that recently came out in the UK, and, you know, you are something of a polymath. And that's what I like in Helgoland as well, which is the connection of so many different ideas. So, so it's again, it's not science as... I, mean, I, I, I talked to some scientists recently, and a couple of them said, you know, science shouldn't tell you how to live your life. It's just information and it's knowledge, and, uh, and it has nothing to tell you. Uh, about that and and I and I do know that some scientists will get quite worried when it starts to connect to get connected to philosophy but to me it seems that it is incredibly important in terms of understanding ourselves that you you can't separate science from then saying it will tell you nothing about how to live your life because even from just even ideas of the big bang I say even ideas of the Big Bang, but you know what I mean? That seems quite detached from being human. And yet the idea that everything was at one point, there was this kind of nothing with an enormous amount of potential, uh, everything about evolution, everything about the periodic table, all of those things, to me, it feels, and I don't know about you, but they all have ramifications in terms of the meaning of what it is to be human. Yes, I'm deeply convinced that this is the case. Uh, I, I don't believe... Uh, um that our knowledge separates in in uh, in pieces, uh, and uh, I believe, in fact, that everything we 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 come across to uh, has an impact on, on on the meaning of life. I mean, let me put it strongly. I mean, when when you read Anna Karenina by Tolstoy, you change your way of thinking about life. It's just that that's it. You have a different ideas of uh, maybe good, maybe bad, but you're enriched by. You must forget me. If you're a good man, you'll forget everything. And you, will you forget? Um, and when you listen to Shakespeare, you might say the same thing about Shakespeare, right? I mean, who cares? I mean, it's, it's not about our life. It's about, you know, a prince in Denmark or, 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 or in Venice, a silly, jealous guy. I mean, there's nothing to do with us. To be or not to be, that is the question. Well, this is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end of them. So study its language, study its structure of its place, uh, and just separate it from yourself. You can do that. There's nothing wrong. In fact, there are people who do that. But you miss uh, three quarters of Shakespeare, in my opinion, which is that he's talking directly to our lives. And it's a, it's a, and I believe it's, it's the same in, in science, when uh, um, science is, is, is a continuous way in which our view of the universe is, uh, is uh, redesigned. And this has happened and is happening. And uh, 
I feel that so, so, humankind learning science is like, you know, the, me, the little kid or whoever, the little kid uh, who just knows little things and then goes out in the world and discover that, I don't know, things are not so simple or so constrained, they're much more beautiful, there's more stuff around. And this changes the way you are, the way you, um, you think about yourself. And also, also I think there Look, I've been in, 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 in Helgoland, I talk about quantum mechanics a lot, but I also talk about meaning uh, and how uh, the notion of meaning uh, can be um, uh, at, uh, trying to understand what, what meanings mean and trying to understand what uh, to be significant means somehow is affected even if indirectly by the deep uh, change of uh, uh, view of the universe that quantum mechanics uh, comes about. And in turn, uh, this means also that when one is thinking about, one is considering the, the discoveries of, of modern science, uh, one reconsiders uh, the way one thinks about oneself and, uh, and the meaning of life. <laughs> I always think, confused by the question of the meaning of life. Do you understand what is what is exactly the question about the meaning of life? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think, you know, for most people I speak to, they don't believe that the universe has meaning or purpose. So it's about finding some kind of satisfaction for yourself. It becomes a personal issue. But I think for a lot of people, it's a, it's like that moment when, when Stephen Hawking, you know, if he, if he was asked, you know, why does the universe exist? And the, the shortest route answer he would give is um, because the laws of physics allow it. No one created the universe and no one directs our fate. This leads me to a profound realization. There is probably no heaven and no afterlife either. We have this one life to appreciate the grand design of the universe. And for that, I am extremely grateful. Uh, and of course, for many people, that won't be enough. And I, and I think it's an interesting... I mean, I think one of the problems sometimes with, with people who are searching for a specific meaning of life is science will never be or indeed any real form of reality will never be able to give them the meaning that they want because the meaning ultimately they want is attached to something that is like a god something that is a power that is cannot be covered by by science or any other form of of, of um, scrutinizing reality so i think that's that's one of the problems that sometimes arises is the answer that people want is not that the laws of physics let me um let me try to tell you how I view this. Um, I think we are, we meaning humans, but also cats and animals and perhaps other living things, uh, we are sort of machines that produce meaning, it seems to me, uh, constantly. I mean, I'm thirsty and uh, I see some water and that water is infinitely meaningful for me. I just want it. <laughs> I just... Um, I see a girl I fell in love with and she's infinitely meaningful to me. In fact, that she feels of meaning everything. It's just everything is meaningful because she's there. I am passionate about something and then I, it, it, that's meaningful for me. So we are 
immensely producing meaning. Um, in fact, it seems to me that the struggle of our life is not lack of meaning, is that sometimes there are too many meanings and conflict one conflicting with another one. So we are pulled in different directions. Uh, and far from, uh, for me, thinking that the only meaning is some sort of self-satisfaction, as the way you put it, because in the same sense in which I'm driven toward the you know, a good Italian pasta <laughs> for self-satisfaction or, you know, having more money so I can buy a better computer for myself. In the same sense, I'm also driven toward, you know, having friends, being generous, uh, uh, loving people, believing in justice. So all these things are inside us. We, we... But now two things happen. One is that uh, uh, doesn't work like that all the time, right? There are crises. Sometimes you suffer. I mean, a friend of yours die and things go wrong and people don't like you and, and, and you feel miserable. And, and so, so you, you, you it, it's like an illness, a depression, something wrong. And then you have this strong feeling of a lack of meaning. Why am I doing this? What is the point? What is the sense of all that? Or you're an adolescent and you know, you, you all crumble upon you and you don't understand anything. You say, what well, the meaning of all this? And so you start searching around and you have this sense of it, but it's not, it's not a natural lack of something. It's a, it's, a, it's, it's a specific illness of having lost the natural situation of, uh, of meaningfulness. And the other thing, which is, uh, more subtle. It seems to me that somehow our civilization, I mean, I mean European, because that's a pretty European story, um, went through a phase, uh, very long and very strong, uh, in which it uh, decided to project everything which is good and meaningful into an idea of an external something out, something outside nature, outside. Uh, something transcendent, something outside ourselves, uh, and put it there and gave it a name and, uh, okay. And when this uh, maneuver uh, started not working anymore, because, uh, because somehow some of this hypostasis uh, crumbled because we learned things and evolution, then people felt lost because, uh, because they had put, they had taken, the natural meanings which were inside and put it outside. And so people think, oh God, there is no God, there is no meaning. And so my life is, is uh, right? Uh, if I believe in justice, uh, I can believe in justice, uh, but if I put justice outside me and then I discover that this outside me, there is nothing, I, I, uh, I, I say, well, there's no justice. And then, and then there's this strange thing that, um, which I don't understand, to assume that if there's nothing outside, then our motives are selfish. But why are our motives selfish to start with? I mean, who gives us selfish motives? This is meaning. I mean, this is uh, to be selfish is an objective in life, uh, which comes from us, but from us also comes to be generous equally. So why, why should the absence, something external, I, I, I'm, I'm confused about that. I, I think that there is immense uh, confusion out there on, on where meanings come from, 
which comes from a period in which we tried to separate meanings from their actual origin, which is our biology, our culture, our history, our mother, our father, our, um, our chemistry. Uh, and uh, all this is not meaningless. And that's what science seems to be teaching to us. Uh, all this is a immense meaning producing machine. There's a, there's a, when I was reading Helgoland, just go, going back to that, which is that there was one line that kept playing in my head, which I think I first read in a book called um, High Weirdness by Eric Davis, which is about Philip K. Dick and and, uh, and Terence McKenna and Robert Anton Wilson. <laughs> and in the book, he says at one point, he says, uh, I take my reality seriously, but not literally. Ah, fantastic. And that seemed to, pl- I, I, throughout the book, I kept having moments where I went, ah, yeah, serious, but not literally. Yeah, fantastic. That was a great line. <laughs> I should mark it down. Um, the Once again, the, the, the confusion, I think, is, is actually with certain. There is a confusion that comes from, from thinking that uh, either we know or we don't. Either uh, we have it for sure or we are in the dark. Uh, either we trust uh, our ideas or we don't. And I think our life is neither, never in, this, uh, in these extremes, or very rarely in these extremes. Most of the time, we, we have ideas and we believe them. You know, we have moral belief and we believe them, or political belief and we believe them. We, we, we have scientific knowledge and we believe the scientific knowledge, um, but not literally, because uh, we know that uh, our knowledge is incomplete and uh, there is this hiatus always uh, between what we know today and what we knew yesterday and there will be still more between what we know today and what we will know tomorrow Um, so there is this uh, um, i think crucial sense of uh, um, of uncertainty and uh, doubt about uh, what what we believe is true, but nevertheless, this doesn't mean that we lose um, that we're in the dark. We the the reality we are dealing with, uh, it's a rela- reality we are dealing with. The separation between all the absolute perfect uh, um, true reality down there and the wrong one that I see, it's it's a it's a misleading idea. I think we. We have an access to reality. I believe that snow is there, the trees is there, this table is here. And nevertheless, I know that in my reading of the snow, the table, uh, democracy, love, beauty, <laughs> uh, death, uh, um, there is a lot of uh, uh, ideas that could be much better and could allow me to, to understand what's going on much better and to deal with what's going on much better. When you were uh, young, you mentioned in the book about, you know, you had your periods of time where you would sit in a red bandana listening to Allen Ginsberg and saying, Om. What, what, where were you then in terms of your, your sense of, of looking at meaning? How different were you? And, and what, what do you think was the meaning you imagined might come from those experiences? 
Those periods, the, the, that period was very radical for me <clears throat> in the sense that I, uh, I thought that the way the large majority of humans live uh, was not good, it was really bad. Uh, that was completely silly to live for, for, uh, you know, for having your position in the social life, uh, for having a family closed. Uh, I mean, the idea of loving few people seemed to be bad. You have to love as much as people you want. Uh, you could um, go out to people. I didn't want to own anything. I didn't believe in uh, in uh, in. Uh, in money, in countries, in, in God, in anything that was, uh, um, I, uh, my ideal for a while <laughs> was to be a beggar um, in the sense of the, you know, the, this mythology in India that it's not a mythology. People do that and somehow. Uh, at some point, you just give up everything and you just go uh, begging out in the world and just thinking about truth or things like that. Um, and uh, my political ideas were extremely radical in the direction of, you know, extreme anarchism. And um, I've calmed down a bit <laughs> from from those extremes, quite a lot. And uh, you know. Uh, realized that there's good in loving one person and not many it's a, it's a, certainly works much better and and you can go deeper and uh, and you do less damage and so on and so forth um <clears throat> but some of that radicalism helped me i think in life um and i think it's good if young people are very radical and so, so a little bit of that radical is still still in me but um even you know, there was a moment in which my first year, my first university year, I I enrolled uh, uh, the university in Bologna, but I really didn't want it. So it was, uh, I got trapped because uh, um, uh, I I wanted to leave and and start traveling, um, but police found some uh, uh, marijuana. Uh, in my little motorbike so there was a moment in which it seemed i had to go through a trial then go to nothing because it was little um so i couldn't leave uh so i enrolled in the first year university but that's not what i wanted to do and i spent some time um you know smoking pot and doing listen to music in a, and then I, I i said well this is not life uh, i i stopped with that and 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 went away. But even that moment in which I sort of gave up with the tension of willing to go somewhere, I think it was positive. Um, I think young people today are very much uh, under pressure. I don't know if the pandemic has released some of this pressure. I hope so, because I see young people very much under pressure and. Uh, if you're under pressure, you stay in the rails. And I think it's good to break the rails and uh, and find your own life. Then life is long and one has time to calm down and find um, one doesn't have to be a re revolutionary all the life, but being a revolutionary helps and it helps society because uh, if there weren't revolutionary people in the past, we would still be with the pharaohs and with slavery and, the, and, and with the horrors of the past.
I know we've nearly run out of time and I've only now got the 57 questions I wrote to do. So if we can just do them all as one word answers, that'll be fine. Um, don't worry. Um, I, there are a couple of things, if you don't mind, I'm just going to rattle through these. Just because I really, no, you don't have to rattle, but I just, one, the first note I made, because all the books I read are always filled with my squiggly marginalia. And the first note I made when I was reading Helgoland was that I envied you like I envy an astronaut because... You know, for for astronauts, I know that they they have seen the world. They've gone beyond the atmosphere and they've looked back. and And when I read your work, I realise you know that there's so many things I don't understand, and you are offering so many different ideas, and and I think increasing the vocabulary, and the kind of in some ways increasing the spectrum, um, as you mentioned almost at the beginning, that the desire for knowledge. I don't know if it's true for you, but, but I think it is, which is that it means that when you look at the sky, when you look at objects, when you look at the world, the world looks different because of some new piece of, 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 of information, some new theory, some new idea. Is that what drives you in terms of the uh, a lot of your, your, your most public work? Yes, absolutely. I think that... Uh, uh, science in general, but specifically quantum, quantum mechanics, which is a, the topic of this book, uh, uh, it's about uh, um, uh, changing the conceptual uh, structure we, we, we use to, 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 to think about the world, um, which means really uh, finding new words or, or, or giving new meanings to old words. Uh, rethinking the uh, the basis and uh, and fundamental my love to, for fundamental physics uh, is precisely because it has this very wide angle view, as you say, it's like the astronauts that uh, you know first saw the, the planet from outside and then changed perspective. Um, in my reading, quantum physics. Uh, is the discovery that we understand better the world in terms of relations rather than in terms of objects. Uh, or more precisely, we can think about objects, but not objects that have a property uh, that are all, all the properties by themselves as objects independent of the rest, uh, but rather the properties are always um, relative to something else. So they refer to how the object relate to something else. So since we describe objects by giving the properties, uh, quantum physics is telling us that uh, we should look at objects um, in terms of the um, of how they affect the rest, which means that if there wasn't a rest, we couldn't say anything about about anything. And this is um, this, I think, is a core discovery of quantum mechanics, which was already um, in the intuition of the forefathers of quantum mechanics, of the fathers of quantum mechanics, like Niels Bohr. Uh, but in my opinion, it has become clear uh, slowly with, uh, with, with, with the decades and, uh, uh, and in fact, a century of, of, of successes of quantum mechanics. But then this is an immense implication because um, it tells us uh, that even at the fundamental level, it's better to think at reality in terms of relations. And this gives us, I think, and that's the main message for, of, of this book, tools for better tools for thinking about, uh, about things. Uh, namely, think about the structure, not the individual, not the single thing. Think about the, the network of, uh, um, of the way things affect one another 
rather than in terms of individual uh, the individual things. Uh, that I think is a, is the main message of quantum um, of quantum mechanics, and that's obviously has, an, in my opinion, has an effect which goes much much farther than just how atoms behave. See, that's what I loved about the book is because I think it does have it has philosophical implications, but they're not the ones that, as you actually mentioned in the book, these terrible uh, various different industries that basically add the word quantum to them and uh, and the quantum healing and quantum yoga and all of those things, which take this kind of very literal. Uh, well, and they actually offer you a cure at a level which is just nonsensical. Yes. Yes. The final question is, have you sniffed all of those books in the shelves behind you? I read a lot, but you said because you in the book you oh, say you, you, oh, you're, yeah, yeah, yeah. you're a oh, book sorry, sniffer. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, oh, yeah, of course, yes, yes, absolutely. In fact, I think uh, I want to play this game one day. Um, ask, uh, close my eyes and ask a friend to uh, bring one book, and if I can recognize it by the sniff, I think several I could easily recognize. <laughs> I love that there's a bookshop, the Notting Hill Book Exchange used to have a sign up saying, please do not sniff these books until you've got them home. <laughs> uh, so you may well have been thrown out. I've Brilliant. been reading a biography of, Schre of Schrodinger for, for, um, for writing Helgoland. And boy, I didn't like it. I didn't like it. I didn't like it. And then something snapped to me. It's just that I didn't like it. It's a bad smell. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So it had affected my brain, the fact that I didn't like it. Probably it was a used book, somebody smoking or something like that. But it just didn't have the right smell. Uh, the, the, the smell of the book is essential. See, that's interesting because I just had, I bought a bunch of old books about witchcraft and voodoo. And clearly the person who used to have them smoked roll-ups. Uh -huh. And I think because they're about witchcraft and voodoo, they the smell of cigarettes is fine. Yes. But I reckon <laughs> if it was a book about quantum mechanics, I would feel discombobulated by the two. So I, I think, yeah, we'll, there's a whole... Let's work on that research paper the moment right. you've got <laughs> your spare time. But yeah, so thank you so much. Thank you. Um, thank you. Thank you for saying that. Thanks for listening to Tips for Existence. We have episodes coming up with Andrean, Neil Gaiman and many more, as well as episodes of An Uncanny Hour about John Carpenter's The Thing, David Cronenberg's The Brood and Exorcist 3 with Mark Kermode and Mark Gatiss and also Derek Jarman's Jubilee with Richard O'Brien and Toya Wilcox. I hope you can support us via Patreon and thanks again to our producer Trent Burton. Carlo Ravelli's Helgoland is out now. And my book isn't out yet, but you can pre-order it. So uh, it's only just happened that the importance of being interested adventures in scientific curiosity. But that's not for a few months, but it is now available for pre-order. But you can buy Carla Ravelli's now. See you next time. Oh, by the way, again, patreon.com slash cosmic shambles. Bye. <laughs>